Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm not going to lie. Usually with redemption, I have to work way, way harder than that. Alex is good at this. Alex can always get them to sit down. I never can. Um, but but it's, it's so good just to, to watch you guys hanging out together and getting to know each other. That's so fun. Um, man, what marriage conference is any good without a talk about reconciliation? I hear... <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, I hear, um, I hear marriage can be tough um, for those who have been involved for a little bit. Um, that, that sometimes we, we sin against each other, that sometimes we come at these sort of impasses with one another. Uh, sometimes they're worse than others, yeah? Sometimes they're worse than others. Uh, preach. <laughs> there's, there's an amen. Thank you. Um, yeah, Brady, Brady should know because he's resolved <laughs> since you're talking. Now I'm going to call you out. Um, Brady, Brady um, and I'll embarrass him, um, but I, but I want to, I'll thank you publicly, um, because both he and his wife, when my wife and I lived in Portland, um, we had a very, very hard two and a half years living in Portland. Um, we had our first experience with spiritual abuse there, and then our second, um, which really almost cost us our marriage. Um, it was very, very difficult for us, um, and our relationship with the church and all of those things. Uh, Brady and BJ... Here we go. You, you know who I'm. You know the emotional speaker. He brings water. Um, Brady and BJ lived in Bellingham at the time and would periodically drive down to Portland just to counsel and to be present with us. That's a good drive. Um, and, and I appreciate you taking the time because I'm still married. And so what a good reminder that that's part of reconciliation is often having community coming in around you uh, when it's difficult and being present with you and helping you communicate and helping you talk and work through all those things. Um, before we get too far into this, I want to encourage you with something. You can sit very theoretical in a discussion on reconciliation or forgiveness or covenant or any of those elements. You can sit in a lot of theory on that. I would not if I were you. I think if you really want to engage with this, I I want you to to be present to that. I want you to go a place in your marriage or in your experience with marriage, Uh, even if you're not married with your parents, maybe you saw some of this. Um, I want you to to go to a place where it was hard, where it looked like it was going to break. I think that's the best place to, to engage a subject like this. Is to, is, to, is to think about the time when it was really hard, when you didn't want to roll over and see your spouse next to you, when you were really having to lean into the vows that you made on your wedding day, that, that now, now we're here. Now we're here. We're at a broken spot in, in our marriage. What, what are we going to do? I, I would engage this talk from there. Secondly, I want to throw two caveats out there. Because we're talking about reconciliation and making it work and and seeing things through. Um, I think it's worth saying, or just publicly stating, 
that God never intended you to stay in an abusive relationship. And if you feel like you have been physically abused or emotionally abused or sexually abused in your relationship, I would encourage you, I would implore you pastorally to find a licensed counselor, to find a trusted close friend, to find a trusted pastor and evaluate that with them as to whether or not this is an abusive relationship that maybe ought to be beyond reconciliation. I don't think that is God's plan for you. If your spouse is beating you, um, I would not hold a John Piper position on that. I would encourage you to find a counselor um, and look at whether or not it makes sense to walk away from that relationship, even though the arc of God's work in all relationship is healing and that continues to be his ideal. That ought to be our hope. Um, but I think we also have to be realistic when it's, it's not you and God in a covenant, it's, it's you and another sinner. And sometimes that's just not possible. Um, the second is this, if either you or your partner is unwilling to reconcile, you cannot reconcile. Both parties have to be willing to come back to the table and entertain the idea of reconciliation. If you've got one who is going to sabotage it and who has simply lost interest and moved on and you cannot, you cannot get any piece of them to come back. I used to have a counseling professor at Western, uh, Norm Thiessen, and Norm used to say, if you ask him on a scale of one to 10, how much, how much hope do you have for this marriage? How much hope do you have for this moving forward in any capacity? If they cannot give you a one, if they've got to go to a zero, uh, you're probably wasting money at this point. We, sh we, can, we can be discouraged over the last season, but there has to be a desire, there has to be a hope for reconciliation and for, for pursuing that. Why would somebody be unwilling? Um, I think there, there's a number of reasons. I think the first category is that you have some people that are in a place where they're, un or they're, they're not capable, they're incapable of changing. Um, some of these can be worked on or, or addressed with different tools. Um, some examples could be sensory issues or more severe cases of PTSD or ADHD um, or dysfunctional family of origin. Um, again, this can be addressed, but I think there's a lot of groundwork that has to happen for that person to come around and be willing to reconcile. Second category would be that they're capable of changing, but they just flat refuse to do so. They've become so embittered with how things have gone in the marriage that, that it, it's gone too far. Um, John Gottman, some of you are probably familiar with John, um, if you've done any, any research on how to heal your marriage, John might have come up. Um, he's at the University of Washington, so he's a local guy. Uh, and he, he has a, a metaphor um, he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and, and these, these are they're metaphors that help predict the end of the relationship and, and whether or not it's going to be rescuable. He gives, he gives four. Carried too far, I think some of these are going to rise to that level of unwillingness. One of them is, is, is that criticism is present. So this isn't offering a critique or some helpful feedback for your spouse. Um, it's disparaging them. It's an attack on your partner's character. It's an attack on your partner's character. 
The, the feedback is intended to make the partner feel rejected and attacked and hurt, and it tends to escalate from there. The second one is contempt that he has. Um, this is when you are you're exuding or communicating in an air of superiority over the other person. Uh, you think you're better than them. And the intent is to make the other partner feel worthless and undesirable. And John says that this one, this one the, the contempt piece, is the greatest predictor of divorce in a marriage. The third is defensiveness. This is generally a response to criticism. It's an attempt to deflect criticism. You can't, you can't bring that in. You can't accept any bit of that. You have to deflect it. It's failure to take ownership for legitimate missteps in your marriage. Failure, failure to take ownership makes the other person feel incredibly unheard. Defensiveness. And the final one is stonewalling. It's where a person fully withdraws, fully withdraws from the interaction. They stop responding. It's a choice to stonewall. It's often caused by feeling overwhelmed, but it, but it halts any progress, any progress that could be made there. All right. Assume someone is willing. Let's go there. What if somebody is willing? Where do we go? What do we do with that? Um, how do you possibly start? I think, I think one thing that, that, that is really helpful, I mean, I, I would be aware of Gottman's four. If you're not familiar with those, I would be aware of those in your marriage um, and aware of whether you see pieces of those even in their infancy coming up. So certainly be aware of those. But even if you're not operating in any of those four, you still have a means of responding to conflict. You still have a natural way of doing that. I think tools like knowing your Enneagram number, if you're into that, um, are really helpful. Um, are helpful to share with your spouse, that they understand what stressed out you looks like, and they understand what healthy you looks like in your personality, and how that comes out. Um, all of us respond to conflict. You know the fight, flight, freeze? I mean, depending on who you read on, there's a few more there. But how, how do you respond in the middle of that? There's the fight that, that stays put, that digs in. There's the flight that runs, that doesn't want to discuss. There's the freeze that, that, that will avoid for days, allow time for pass to pass without addressing any of it. There's the fawning, I think, which is worth adding on there. It's becoming agreeable so as to minimize the pain and avoid it. You just make, make the problem go away with time. You don't actually engage with it and, and do anything about it. And arguably, I would even add a fifth one. I was trying to come up with an F. I would call it faking it. Faking it is a response to conflict where we just don't work on things. We tolerate things over time, but we just don't bring it up and have, have any chance to dig in and actually look at what like properly diagnose what's happening here. I really like what Josh said last night when he was talking about God's honesty with us, that when God confronts our sin, it's, it's all out in the light. That there, there's no minimizing of it. But, but the, we, it's all out in the light, and then we address it. 
you, you can't do that with faking it. Um, your family of origin can dictate this. Your past experience and conflict can dictate this. And those aren't necessarily wrong. Um, but knowing your stress response, knowing where you tend to go, and again, sharing that with your spouse, um, your, aim, your aim in healing really ought to be to aid and grow the communication that you have in your marriage. Be able to communicate with one another. Um, and so I think letting your spouse know or figuring that out together of like, this is what it looks like when I'm stressed. This is what it looks like when I'm in the midst of conflict. This is what it looks like for me so that they understand that experience and they're helping you work through that. Because the whole point of this is to promote communication so that you guys understand each other and, and really finally start to click again. Um, ahead of time, I would recommend setting ground rules as to how you argue. What are the rules? Um, you know, the, the I need space heard by someone with attachment issues is, is going to be very, or abandonment issues, is going to be very hard to hear. But when that's discussed prior to getting into an argument, it gives you the groundwork as to how this goes. Can I call a timeout? Can, can, I, can I step into the other room to process? Because, because for me and for, for, for my one of the five Fs, uh, being able to back away is what's helpful for me. For you to know that for your spouse, that won't be taken as a threat. But that thing is like, no, that, no you, are, you are actively working towards a resolution here by doing that. But sometimes those are so misinterpreted. Those are so misinterpreted in the midst of an argument. But if they had just been discussed beforehand, you'd be in such a better place to do that. You'd have, you'd have a framework of doing that, of moving forward. Um, in conflict, We've started talking about this in a staff and in, in staff at Redemption. Um, that conflict, conflict. How do we say it? Conflict is the opportunity for creativity. Conflict is the opportunity or the birthplace of creativity. It's a chance to come alongside and work on something together. Your marriage is not the conflict, but you have two parties that can come along and get creative and work through a conflict that's happening in your marriage. It's a project. It's a project that you can come to and come up with creative solutions to, uh, to work through that and process through that. All right, it's a lot of good practical stuff, I hope. I hope some of it was practical. You'll get one more really practical piece at the end. Um, we have a lot of ideas as to how to relate to one another, but, but if, we're, if we're Christians, I assume we all are, if we're Christians, we ought to at least have some thought to look to how God handles conflict. That really our model as to how to do this really well is to, is to be understood by, by watching how God handles this, how Jesus handles this in some cases, how Yahweh handles this in some cases. Um, but it's good to look at that and, and at least see how that's illustrated. Because again, our marriage is supposed to be an example of the gospel writ large. It's, it's experienced gospel with another person. All of that reconciliation, all that healing, all of that forgiveness is, is an image of the gospel. So if it's gonna be that, we ought to look to God to see what he would model for us. Um, the first way he shows it is, is, is the foundation of his relationship, that it, it is through covenant that you have that, that a covenant relationship. That's how he describes it. 
Covenant is rooted in the image of partnership. It is doing something together. And so when God covenants with Israel or God covenants with any individual person, it's always in partnership to go do something together. And in, in Christian marriage, we talk about marriage, again, imaged off of that, of, of this is us entering into partnership to do something together, to work alongside one another, to, to sanctify one another, to be on mission together, to do these things. But we're in covenant together. We've made, we've made a bond. We've made a promise together. And that's how God relates to us as well. God makes promises, and the other party makes commitments back to God. And we have a covenant agreement. That's great. That's super helpful. Um, fast forward. God's relationship with Israel, or with anyone that he makes a covenant with, is, is spotty on a good day. <laughs> it's definitely, Israel is a tough covenant partner. Any human is a tough covenant partner. It's true in our marriage as well. And ultimately, what we needed was Jesus to come and to be the good, perfect covenant partner that, that, that would finally be able to, to participate in the work with God and bring us back into relationship with him. The, the alternative relationship um, that we have, that humans have kind of come up with, is a contract relationship, right? And I'll, I'll hit this quick, but the, the basic idea of a contract is you ink your agreement you say, this is what this is going to look like. And you lay out, um, I think what attorneys would call, the things you need to perform, the things you need to do. And as long as you do those things, that's great. But, but a contract's goal is to define liabilities when things go wrong. What am I going to be responsible for? How is this going to work? It's the same thing with your lease agreement, right, if you've got one of those. Um, when you wreck the house... How is this going to go down? That's all it is, is, is defining how that's going to work. How you're going to, whether or not you have to stay in this relationship or whether or not you can get out. That's the intention behind it. And, and I do think a lot of marriages, both Christian and secular, work out of that model. Whether we actually wrote it down or not, I have a set of expectations that I think you ought to align with. And if you don't align with those, namely making me happy. If you don't make me happy, and I feel like I would be happier outside of this relationship, I should get out. I should get out, because I, you know, YOLO, you only live once, so why would I be stuck in this marriage with this spouse who doesn't meet my expectations? So therefore, I jet, I get out, I grab a divorce attorney, we work this out, and if I was smart, I signed a prenup. I mean, what an image of contract, right? That that's how you might relate to someone. But, but covenant is so different than that. It's intentionally different, because God is different, and God is always working on this arc of reconciliation. He's always aiming towards healing, and so our concern should never be in a covenant how you might get out of it because the aim is always to fix it. The aim is always to land in a healed position. The, the, the aim is always remedy and continued relationship. I love Jeremiah 31. I love the language that he uses here. I think this is helpful. You guys might know this one. 
Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, says this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Real nice covenant language there. Declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. So God very intentionally uses marriage language. He calls himself the husband of Israel. We're, we're covenant partners here. And in spite of Israel's failure, and if you've read Jeremiah, you know it's not going well. It's, it's not at all going well. But God shows himself willing to be present with them and move forward in the relationship towards healing. This is, I mean, God dealing with Israel, and he uses the language of adultery with them all the time, all the time. This is like God walking into the bedroom with someone in bed with your spouse and saying, Jesus, like, I'm going to need this other person to go so that we can fix this. And even though you are caught red-handed in this, uh, I'm going to be your covenant partner. We're going to figure out how to move forward together. We're going to figure out what healing will look like. Sorry. I choke up there. My wife has never cheated on me that she's in the back. No, but seriously, it's serious like that, right? God has been watching Israel and watching their behavior ad nauseum, their faithlessness on repeat all the time. And yet because this is not a contract relationship, because he is so rooted in covenant in, in the promise that he made with them, his aim is not their destruction. Her aim, his aim is their healing. How are we gonna move forward with this? This whole writing law on tablets and writing it down in the Torah is not gonna work. I'll come up with another idea as to how we might approach this. Maybe I'll, I'll put it on your hearts and on your, and on your soul and your spirit. Um, that maybe then we could move forward. Maybe then we could be covenant partners. But think of that. Think of this interaction with Israel. He, he, emphasizes the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your covenant husband, and I'm going to restore you. It's all towards healing. It's all towards healing. Every bit of it. Oh, how are we doing on time? We're okay. I have an illustration here, and I was like, it might get emotional, but we'll, we, we'll, we'll hit it really quick. Um, man, I'll tell you what, there's no greater gift than a covenant. Um, there, really, there really isn't. Um, and, and you really only know how good your covenant is when it's been tested. When you think that your spouse might actually walk away on you. Or when you think you have screwed up so, so bad that, that there's no way they'd stick it out with you. Jeez, here we go. Um, several years ago, I opened a brewery, um, took, a, took a hobby too far. 
and kept going and, and didn't stop. And so we opened, a, we opened a brewery. And within a couple of months of that, we knew that that was a very bad decision. The beer's good, but the finances were not quite what we expected them to be. And the build-out had taken way too long. And um, we were two months into it, and we were pretty sure that all three partners were going to need to declare bankruptcy. That was going to be the remedy. And so on my 10th wedding anniversary, I had the pleasure of meeting with an attorney to discuss the difference between chapter 7, 11, 13 bankruptcy. Anybody know the chapters? There's lots of them. And looking at what my options were and which ones would allow me to keep my house and which ones might not. And, and what reconciling with my creditors would look like. And so my wife and I, because it's our 10th wedding anniversary, we can't stay in town. We gotta go party, right? We're driving up to Bellingham, because Bellingham's where the party is at. And um, we're, we're driving up there, and I've just met with this attorney, so you've gotta be thinking an hour and a half to two hours north on five. Uh, when is that gonna come up? When does the podcast, the lull in the podcast come up? When are we gonna do this? But we don't, she had so much grace and mercy for me. But we finally sit down to dinner, and she, uh, we had some really good fried pickles there. Um, since we're into food, right, Josh? Um, and, and she said, okay, explain it to me. And so I'm doing my best to explain my layman's terms of how we are going to move forward from this part of our marriage that we're gonna declare bankruptcy and you know do whatever. And we get to the end of it. Talk about needing a beer. <laughs> um, we, we, we get to the end of it and she goes, I want you to know that I'd do it all over again with you. Even if we declare bankruptcy, even if we're done, even if we lose the house, for all the fights with my parents, for almost losing our marriage a year prior, or three years prior, that I'd do it all over again with you. That is the greatest safety net to be real with your spouse that you will ever get, that it can be so broken and that they are still in, they're still in it with you. Um, there's no greater safety than that. The covenant is so tight. And to say we could be on the streets, we could be in a box, but we'll be on the box together is so good. It's such a blessing. It was so healing for me. We didn't declare bankruptcy, don't worry, we figured it out. So, a few, pr few promotions and some social media marketing and that thing is running. So it's fine. Amen, amen. We've got a great new hazy, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, second illustration, and I'm, I'm gonna, geez, guys, I'm gonna keep you from dinner. Uh, but not for too much longer, because I want to get one more thing out. One more thing that I think was really practical for us. Two more things were practical. First, forgiveness. 
We'll, we'll go off the notes. How about that? And move quicker through it. Um, God gives us a wonderful image of what it means to forgive uh, on the cross. And it never quite hit me until 2017. And, and I'll get to that. So Melinda, and she gave me permission to share this. Um, when, when I, Melinda and I first started dating, we are not alike. We're more alike now, but we were not alike. I, I had been a Christian, uh, so when I first met her, I had been a Christian, uh, or sorry, we met April 1st. Sorry, I'm looking at her. And I went four months before I became a Christian, knowing her. Um, and so my faith was very new. We started dating that December, so I had known her for all of seven months. We started dating that December, and we are getting into August, and so I've been a Christian right at the one-year mark at this point. We start talking to her parents about um, getting married, because that's what Christians do. And, um, and they were concerned, and, and probably with good reason, they were concerned. Um, Melinda comes from a Mennonite pacifist family. I come from a career Air Force family. Um, I will say, yeah, there's some laughter there. Do you know the Mennonites? They're wonderful people. They are wonderful people. Um, but but there, were, there were some different mindsets there that had to come together. I will say she came from more money than my family came from. Thank you, BJ, for giving her a hug. She's listening to all this. Um, there were a lot of differences that kind of had to be reconciled there. And I think Melinda and I figured that out in dating, but that was much harder with her folks. And we went months and months and months through very painful back and forth as to what this was going to be. And that, that hurt a lot. That hurt a lot for us, for me especially. Um, so I didn't feel like I was getting a lot of grace or a lot of a chance there. You ask your father-in-law if you can marry his daughter, and this has gone on for three months, and you're going through you know, credit checks and all kinds of things to look at your stuff. This is just very deep and very emotionally wounding for me. This is the number one thing we argued about for the first seven years of our marriage. The number one thing was whether or not that was appropriate, how it went, all of these things, and Melinda sat in a tug of war in all of that. Um, and, and we were constantly trying to put things together and fig figure out next steps and how to move forward in this whole thing. And, and it was just, it was this constant wound that kept coming up and kept coming up for us. And we needed, we needed a way to move forward, not just with each other, but also with her folks. We needed, we needed healing there. We needed, we needed to figure out what the next steps were. And we had sat down with some peacemaking counselors. We had tried some different things on to figure out what next steps could possibly be. Um, not making a lot of progress, just a lot of lists at each other of how we've wronged each other. Um, not, really, not really moving forward. We go to this conference in 2017, and there's this woman there that's speaking, and she was Rwandan, and she had a family of 13, 11 of which had been killed in that genocide by her neighbors. Because this is not just like other sides of town, her neighbors, people she still interacted with were responsible for uh, murdering her family. Um, and she's trying to figure out as a Christian how to move forward with this. And she's reading through the Gospels. And of course, she's read the Gospels 
numerous times before. And of course, I had read the Gospels numerous times. I had my MDiv by this point. So read the Gospels before. I know what forgiveness is. But she reads the Gospels, and she comes across Jesus on the cross. And he says this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I had spent all of this time trying to articulate the level of pain and the detail of it and how much it's affected us and all the things that had done to our marriage, how damaging it was. And yet Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which meant that the forgiveness could come long before they fixed themselves. Do you get that? Do you get? And it was like, oh, Oh, so maybe part of reconciling this relationship isn't figuring out all the nuances until her parents clean themselves up or we clean ourselves up and we become in a good spot and now we can come to forgiveness. But the forgiveness was the catalyst for being able to move forward. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. <sighs> Blew my mind. How many times I had read by that? Blew my mind. Um, and we, we went back, we met with our folks, and that's exactly what we did. We put away our list, and we just said, hey, I, I'm going to have to do this numerous times, but I want to come to a place where I can forgive you. I do forgive you. And I'm going to choose to put aside my anger and put aside my wrath so that we have a foundation that we can move forward on. I know that moved, I know that moved them. I could watch it move them in the room. That we could move forward and start that. And that Melinda and I, and, and even my behavior in responding to that pain and that hurt, that she and I could come to a place of forgiveness as well without having all of that figured out. Forgiveness is the foundation upon which the relationship can finally rebuild and start healing. Don't withhold your forgiveness with one another. Seriously, take care of your foundation. Re rebuild that. All right, last bit. I, when Alex and Josh and I were talking about, you know, how do we pull all this together, marriage conference, these things, what do you want to do? One of the things we talked about was kind of being more practical, more practical, with some of the things that we give you, that this is not just a, a high-level academic theological thing, even though we would all jam on that. We would all love that. But I wanted to leave you with something that's been really powerful in my marriage and powerful for healing. Um, we, um, I won't go into the details of it too much, but suffice to say that in October of 2016, Melinda and I were sitting in a counseling office. We were not living in the same state, um, we had just finished our second spiritual abuse situation. Uh, we uh, came very close to losing our house and getting it foreclosed in Portland. You can see money has always been great for us. It's wonderful. And then I went into ministry. Um, we, we, uh, um, but we were in a difficult spot. We were not communicating. We were trying to figure out what, what could you possibly do to move forward. And one of the keys um, that Justin, our counselor, helped us see um, was the importance of communication and being able to slow down and listen to one another. That sounds real basic to some of you. It was not to us. And he gave us this acronym, and I'll fly through it really quick. It's a tool. It's a tool. 
Um, it's called Thanos, F-A-N-O-S. If you have, yeah, you could pull out your phone if you want to write it down. If not, I'm not offended. But it's an acronym that stands for feeling, affirmation, need, ownership, and schedule. And the way that it works, you flip a coin to start, or you just lovingly decide to let your spouse start. And you walk through it, and one of them goes through on their own without being interrupted unless you invite them to interrupt you. This is how I'm feeling. This, these are the emotions that I'm feeling right now. I feel rejected. I feel whatever. Like the, when, when I experienced that, this is what I felt as it was going through me. Affirmation, something I see you doing right. I see you, like the way that you're interacting with the kids, you have been so much more present of late. I, like It's been so cool to watch those interactions and see you grow as a mom. You're a good mom. That would be a good affirmation. That's true of you too. Um, and need, what do I need right now in the relationship? I need time with you. I need more than uh, 15 minutes ships passing in the night right now. It's a busy season. I need us to prioritize getting, uh, it, it, getting time with one another. Um, at least a half hour a night. Maybe that's your thing. This is what I need right now. O is ownership. Um, this is something that I need to take responsibility for in our marriage right now, where I've, I recognize my own missteps, my own falling short in our marriage, and I need to own that and ask for forgiveness from you. This is something I could be, it may even be something you don't know about, um, but this is something I need to ask for forgiveness with. And then lastly is schedule. Um, when am I willing to do this with you again? And man, we did it all the time. Are you correcting me? I couldn't tell if she was correct. <laughs> she had her finger up like, no, I think he missed. No, I think it is scheduled. Uh, you can tell me later if it's not. Because um, it's really a one-way thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, when am I willing to do this with you? And we did, we did this several nights a week for a long time. Um, I think the longest I ever went with it nonstop was 90 minutes on my own talk of this is really where I'm at. We've had it go like five minutes as well. That's perfectly fine. But we just found that tool is so helpful. And then the other person goes back and does it the other way. But we just found that tool so helpful just to start conversations. Um, and how many times I would hear things out of my wife that were just like really just showing her heart and her intent for the marriage and for where we were going. And again, just promoted healing, promoted getting there. And I think you find when you as spouses can communicate well, and you're rooted in covenant, and you're, you're, you're offering forgiveness as foundation to move forward, and you're finally communicating, but you see how much you really do care for each other, even if you're pretty broken people, even if you're pretty messy. And that's okay, because sanctification, it's a process, it's a process. And growing your marriage is a process. Yeah, I think we want to eat pizza. Um, I think that's what my conclusion says. Um, but, but seriously, I mean, that, that, that's my prayer. Please, my, my, my prayer for you guys would be that you would, you would think through how God loves you, the manner with which he does that. Um, and that, that would cause you, when you realize the grace that's been spent on you and the free forgiveness that he gave you, that, that, that that would help you work through and practically come to a place of reconciliation and healing in your marriage.